The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, after England's topical performance against Italy, sterling tumbling, second-tier nation, crisis of trust, we look at the 1-0 at San Siro and ask, was it just Nations League mayor? Will Kane and Go get their phlegm back with Qatar? Plus, with the World Cup just around the corner, we check out England's first opponents, Iran, and ask what kind of tournament we're going to get in the tiny, shiny city-state that's hosting it. All that and what are the chances of a proper France meltdown this time around in this Totally Football Show. Hello, listener. Slight note of surprise to find you here today. It's Monday, 26th of September. International break here with us, ready to tell all. Tom Williams. Hello, Tom. Hello, James. Nick Miller. Hello, James. And also big, totally welcome to Joey Durso. Hi, Joey. Hi, James. Joey is the investigations writer for The Athletic and has recently returned from visiting Qatar. Be hearing more about that later on. It is the last international break before the World Cup. We'll also have very shortly the return of Basil McDaddy on England's first opponents there, Iran. Plus, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, straight after the World Cup, it's Christmas. It is. Um, I imagine everyone is already scrambling for gift ideas, so I'm going to have the perfect solution for you later. What? The, the, the perfect solution being? Tell us now. The Totally Football book, the second edition. Uh, it's out on October the 6th. Um, lots what kind of, of thing. Lots of terrific writing about where football is in 2022. I've written some things. Tom's written some things. I'm looking forward to Adam Hurry writing about the concept of Frank Lampard. And also, definitely, if you, like I, have ever wondered who is the most statistically average player in the Premier League, Duncan Alexander's got your back. Can you spoiler? Can you can you tell us who it is? Uh, You know, I'm I'm going to keep that back. Is it a surprise? Uh, it is. It's a massive surprise. Yeah. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. October the sixth. You say. October the sixth. Available for pre-order now. Brilliant. All right. With pictures and everything. Fantastic. Uh, good. Perhaps we'll hear more about that later on. Right now, let me say internationals. What happened this weekend? England got relegated. Wales got relegated. While Scotland could move above both of them into the top tier themselves if they beat Ukraine. On Tuesday, France almost got relegated after losing to Denmark 2-0, but Croatia beating Austria saved them and put Croatia into the Nations League Final Four next summer. Who else is going to be in that? Well, them, the Netherlands, who beat Belgium 1-0, and uh, one team from Spain and Portugal, who will be playing each other on Tuesday, and one team from Italy and Hungary, who go on Monday night. Also, the Faroe Islands beat Turkey. Let's begin with the nation that lost to Italy on Friday, England. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Raspadori, grande aggancio in area. A sinistra di Marco, centralmente Pompega. Raspadori, destro, rete. E siamo avanti noi. Esattamente al ventitresimo minuto nel corso del primo tempo, del secondo tempo a San Siro. Giacomo Raspadori there, relegating England to the second tier of Nations League and opening a fresh can of whoopers. Beleaguered manager Gareth Southgate's reign. It's the second relegation of his career after Borough, and the numbers are stark. Five games without a win for England, first time since Roy Hodgson in 2014. No goals from open play in that time. Crisis, or is it just the Nations League, and really, what does it matter? What do you think, guys? Nick? I mean, I don't know. From from my personal perspective, I'm not, I can't pretend to be enormously bothered about the Nations League, but I, I think England and Gareth Southgate probably were. Uh, crisis? I don't know. I mean, there's a kind of long history of England being incredibly underwhelming before tournaments, and, you know, it's all worked out fine for, in every tournament since then, so it's probably going to be OK. Um, <laughs> You're being ironic, aren't you? I, You know what? I am, James. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was it was a it's just a fairly. It was the game was on Friday night, and I can't remember a huge amount about it because mm. it was because it was just so sort of flat and underwhelming and a bit nothingy really. Well, the first half was very flat and underwhelming, and the second half I think saw a, a lot more going on, including uh, that wonderful Raspberry goal, a pretty wonderful take that he'd managed just before that. 
to try and set up uh, Nicolo Barella, who was then offside. And in the final 10 minutes, kind of a, a flurry of kind of half chances, I guess, for England. The first shot on target by Southgate's team was after 75 minutes. Joey, you were watching this in a pub in Scarborough. How was the mood there? Yeah, pretty flat. You know, people were just going on their phones talking about other things. They weren't glued to the screen. I mean, my main takeaway was that dreadful shade of blue on the Italian team. I mean, what's going on Did there? Did you Is not that like that? No, is that a new thing? I've never seen that. Uh, it's been... I'm pretty sure that the Combat 2000 that they sported for Euro 2000 was the same right. hue. A sort of aquamarine. Mm. Mm. The Combat 2000 was the stretchy one that was kind of designed to make it really obvious when someone was tugging your shirt. Um, and also Wales' totally kits unwearable. were also made by Kappa at, at mm. that point, and I remember that particular design of shirt was uh, particularly unkind to John Hartson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I had the same sort of, uh, you know, kind of low-key Proustian rush watching the highlights of Italy, England and seeing that shade of Italy kit and, and thinking of the, was it the Euro 2000 shirt? And of course, a shirt that, that served them pretty well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, this time around, it's not a great Italy side, I, I, I would suggest. They failed to make the World Cup, obviously. They got pumped 5-2 by Germany back in in, in June, they're missing a bunch of players. Raspadori, one of the kind of new blood that, that uh, Mancini's had to bring through. And he's, he's been doing really, really well. Four goals already. But the Gazetta's take the next day, I was curious to read, uh, they called England timid and disappointing. They said, L'incomprensibile Southgate, the beyond understanding Southgate, who has on his bench people like Alexander Arnold, Mount and Abraham, but reckoned it was enough to just do two changes. And then they say in English, thanks, Gareth. <laughs> oh, Ouch. How, how how much is is this a great squad being mismanaged? Um, it's a, it's po- possibly slightly. I mean, I think one of the problems that Southgate has is that not actually many of the a lot of theoretically very good players, but not too many of them are actually playing very well at the moment for their club teams. I mean, Kane's Kane's doing okay. Dyer Bellingham is. I think he's playing quite well for Dortmund, but Declan Rice isn't playing well. Harry Maguire, we all know about. Mason Mount, who was obviously didn't play on Friday, but has been a key member of the team before. He mm. started the season fairly quietly for Chelsea. I mean, it you know it doesn't help that one of the players that is playing very well for his club team is Bukayo Saka, who you know has promptly played wildly out of position. So um, you know Southgate isn't helping himself there. But I think that's it. Obviously, doesn't explain the whole thing, but uh, I think that is one of the issues that he he has to face at the moment. I mean, international football is all about finding a group of players who you trust and putting them in a system that, that works and brings the best out of everyone. And then basically just sticking to that and making small adjustments between tournaments. Uh, it's not about picking your best players. It's not about picking your most talented players. It's about finding a system that works. And I think what is unfortunate for Gareth Southgate is that if you go back to the European Championship, you look at the team that started the final, for example... He could not have predicted what would happen to Harry Maguire over the the 12 months that that followed the tournament or what happened to Luke Shaw. If you'd said that Luke Shaw would fall off a cliff, that Harry Maguire would would, would become a a national laughing stock. You know, no one could have predicted that 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 those two players would would encounter so many difficulties. I think Calvin Phillips' absence is is perhaps not given the the, the significance that that it perhaps deserves in in terms of what what he specifically brings to the team. Um, and you know, the unfortunate thing for Southgate is that yes, there there is a very deep talent pool with England. He had he had made the decision to to go without players like Trent Alexander Arnold. And up until last summer, that that worked pretty well. England were, you know, some slightly better penalty kicks away from winning the European Championship. Right. Um, And I, you know, I I find that I often make this point when we're talking about the international game, but it's it's very easy to turn things around in in international football, even with players who are underperforming. Um, You know, Southgate has shown in the past that he is capable of getting England to the the latter stages of major tournaments, Mm. even with players who are currently being decried and, and with players who aren't playing you know, a huge amount of football in their club. So while the kind of, you know, the kind of latent pessimism is is fully understandable, there are England managers who've gone into tournaments before with just as much pessimism and 
you know, done quite well. I mean, think about 1990. Bobby Robson was one of the least popular managers mm. England had ever had. And a few weeks later, he's a, a national treasure. France at 1998, Aimé Jacquet was absolutely destroyed by the French media, you know, going into the tournament and ends up as, as, as a world champion. You know, that Southgate has, has not become a totally hopeless manager overnight. These players have not, you know, totally forgotten how to, how to win football matches, although you might be forgiven for thinking so, given recent evidence. So, I, yeah, I mean, the, the doom and gloom is understandable, but it does not necessarily mean that England cannot possibly have a good World Cup. Well, this is why I'm curious as to whether it's just a lack of interest from the team or a, not a lack of interest, but a lack of intensity because subconsciously they feel that Nations League is not, especially when you've got the World Cup around the corner, it, it just isn't that important because the trajectory was so positive right up until kind of 15 minutes into that game against Italy at Wembley. The, the, there'd been the, the World Cup semi-final at last, returning to that. Then there'd been the, the Euro final. But since then, unable to win a game. I mean, this incredible stat that England are one of only two nations yet to score a single non-penalty goal in the entire Nations League fixtures, the other being San Marino. San Marino. And in fact, the last team England scored from open play against in a competitive fixture was San Marino almost a year ago. You had people on the field like Kane and well, who else was there? But Bellingham Grealish came on, Saka... Uh, admittedly out of position, as you say, Sterling. Why is it that in all that time they haven't been able to fashion anything? I suppose psychologically the Nations League might be a sort of slightly weird halfway house between proper competitive football, or in, this is in the mind, maybe in the minds of players, proper competitive football and friendlies because they can just kind of, they, everyone knows what how to approach friendlies and everyone knows how to approach World Cup qualifiers or tournament games. But this new theoretically competitive tournament might be slightly strange thing for people to kind of psychologically approach, particularly in this strange year. Maybe I'm just making excuses for players in England obviously didn't have too much of a problem with the psychology of whether it was competitive when they got to the final couple of years, well, sorry, the semi-final a couple of years ago. One of the things that uh, that was quite notable on um, on Friday night, a sure sign of a struggling team with some with some slash you know one really top class player was Harry Kane looked as if he was trying to do an awful lot on his own, particularly in the kind of you mentioned the you know first shots on target in the seventieth minute or whatever it was. Kane had a flurry of shots on target where he had better options elsewhere, and he's usually pretty good about you know while being your classic kind of goal-scoring centre-forward, he's usually pretty good about bringing mm. other people into play. But this time he shot when he probably should have passed. And that's quite. I think that's quite often a sign of a struggling team with a, a star player who thinks he kind of needs to do everything on his own. Joey, is there anything that stands out to you? Yeah, well, just, it sounds a lot like I was in Paris on Thursday night to watch um, France against Austria. And I just think there, there are kind of huge similarities of this very good team on paper that have won a lot or got close to winning a lot very recently and just sort of can't switch on in the Nations League. I mean, France actually won that game 2-0. There was a real sort of air of fatigue and pessimism and sort of the brilliance of Mbappe meant they scored two goals. But that's one win in six for them, which is clearly just way below what what they should be um, doing given the amount of stars in their ranks. I mean, it's clearly just hard for these players to whip themselves up for the Nations League. Um, So whether, you know, both these star-studded teams will implode on launching the World Cup or something completely different will happen. I mean, we don't know. And I guess it might be significant the fact that Italy, who did win the game and were up for it on Friday night, clearly don't have a World Cup coming up. So the idea of them reaching the the Nations League final is something of a... is a very desirable target in the circumstances, Nick. Yeah, not many of the sort of traditionally big European teams that you might expect to do something at the World Cup are playing very well at the moment. Joey's obviously talked about France there. Spain a bit of a bit patchy, England relegated, Italy and Germany currently behind Hungary, although that might obviously change with the, the last games tonight. Belgium have been patchy. There's really just... Uh, Netherlands have kind of ripped through this, and they're, they're top of their group, I don't think they've lost the game, and maybe Portugal, they're top of mm. their group as well. Otherwise, not many of the bigger European teams have uh, performed very well, so maybe it is a sort of strange collective psychological funk and also, the Nations League is a completely unprecedented way for, um, for for international sides to prepare for a major tournament because you're playing 
nominally competitive matches against teams of comparable quality. So, you know, in, in, the, in the vast sweep of, of international football history, it's very rare for the big teams to have played quite so many very difficult matches in the months immediately preceding a World Cup. And, and as a consequence, if you're slightly off the boil, as England have been, and if you're playing high level um, and or super motivated opposition like Hungary, you know, for example, the chances are you are going to struggle. You know, it's not like preparing for a World Cup by just, you know, playing meaningless friendly matches. You're playing competitive matches against teams of a of, of a comparable strength. And it's, you know, it's probably not surprising that, that, that some of the big guns have come unstuck. I mean, you know, Nick's mentioned some of the teams who haven't had a great time of it. You can throw Germany in there as well, um, you know, who who are, you know, where are they? Third in third yeah, in England. lost group, to Hungary so. the other night. Um, and I, th- I think that that is a factor. This, you know, this 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 new context that the Nations League represents. All of which could be something positive because it does sound a better way to prepare for a tournament in just under two months to actually play more arduous, more testing matches. If there was any sign that England were game by game resolving these issues that they have in terms of getting the best out of their players. But I think one of the reasons that people are so down on England after the game at San Siro is that. There doesn't seem to be any progress on that front, Joey. Yeah, I wonder how much of it subconsciously or otherwise is just avoiding injuries. I mean, you know, these players have played so much in the last 18 months. We know about the muscle fatigue and how, you know, if you're Harry Kane, you must be absolutely terrified of picking up a, is it his knee or his ankle or this recurring problem two weeks before Qatar and missing what could be the biggest moment of your life. I mean, I'm not saying these players are going out on the pitch consciously thinking that, but it must feed into if you're going to go hard into every tackle or strain for that last sprint. I hear you, Joy. Well, England do have one more game before the World Cup, and it is against Germany, excitingly, and that's Monday night at Wembley. We'll hear from Raphael Honigstein in Tuesday's Totally Football Show with his reaction to that. Germany have just been beaten by Hungary for the first time in a competitive fixture since the 1954 World Cup. Ouch. Next up today, though, let's talk about the team that England are going to be facing on the 21st of November in their Group B opener at the World Cup, Iran. This is Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the podcast dedicated to Manchester United from The Athletic. After what's felt like an eternity without Premier League football, it's back with a bang for United this weekend with the Manchester derby taking top billing. Join myself, Andy Mitten, Laurie Whitwell and Karl Anker every week, but particularly this week as we build up to what's probably the toughest test yet of United's newfound optimism under Eric Ten Hag. Just search for Talk of the Devils wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to click follow and subscribe for access to all our episodes. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. England's World Cup group is USA, Wales and Iran. And on the 21st of November, it is Iran, who England will be kicking their campaign off against. Now, if Team Meli, I hope I pronounced that right, didn't look the toughest opponents when the draw was made, what about now with Carlos Quiros back at the helm and fresh from a win over Uruguay? To answer that question, we're joined by Basil McDaddy, Totally's Iranian football expert. Basil, lovely to speak to you again. Yeah, nice to be on the show again. I hope everyone is doing well. And um, I think we've got an interesting group B to talk about. It seems everyone's a little bit out of sorts, but I think Iran might be the one that's uh, happiest with the international break so far. Right. Okay. Obviously, these are troubled times in Iran with such unrest all over the country right now. And last week's win over Uruguay was almost behind closed doors. The authorities, I believe, tried to, to, to shut down access because they were concerned over the protests uh, spilling out in, into the crowd there. Yeah, it, you know, I think officially they said it was behind closed doors, but there was a, um, a small group of fans that were allowed into the stadium. Uh, the one thing that Iran's um, handlers did do was actually um, prevent Carlos Kirosh and the rest of the team of in participating in any media events. So um, 
From what I was told by colleagues who were on the ground, there was no press conference and there was no mix zone uh, before or after the game. There's been tremendous excitement, which is not a word you always associate with Carlos Queiroz, but about his return as manager, what, three weeks ago? You yourself saying that you, you, you think that their prospects, Iran's prospects at the World Cup, have gone from slim to serious with his appointment. Why, Basil? Well, I, you know, I, although Carlos Queiroz doesn't get the pulses racing in Europe, and I think um, most people remember him for completely flaming out at Real Madrid after just one season uh, and maybe not really achieving the heights that he could have with uh, Portugal. He's, he's really well loved in Iran. And, you know, his return was facilitated by uh, players who actually had a bit of an internal revolt against the uh, manager that was in charge previously, Dragan Skocic, to the point where, you know, a manager with an 83% winning percentage uh, was actually let go by the Federation in order to make way for Carlos Kirish to come. And um, from what I've heard is that he hasn't actually um, signed on to a massive salary. So I think him and his um, and his staff are only going to receive something like eighty thousand dollars from here till the end of the World Cup. So uh, I think it's a bit of a labor of love for Carlos Kirish. Now, that said, this is his third go around um, trying to uh, appear at the 2022 World Cup. He took charge of Colombia. He was let go of that um, job just after a year or so. Uh, Then he turned up in Egypt, uh, led them to an African Cup of Nations final to the playoff against Senegal. They, They lost both matches against Senegal. And now he actually will be at the World Cup, this time with Iran, who he led at the 2014 and 2018 World Cup. And I think if we cast our minds back to um, Group B of the 2018 World Cup, Iran did uh, really, really well. Four points in a group that uh, included Portugal, Spain, Morocco. Mm. And really, you know, maybe if that chance that Mehdi Taremi got very late on against Portugal uh, was better taken... uh, we might be talking about a, a historic run by, by Iran in that World Cup. Or if Milad Mohammadi had done that throw-in that he wanted to do, in, in it could have been last 16, huh? Yeah, yeah, that lives long long in the memory. But, you know, I, I mentioned Mehdi Tademi and, and, you know, in the four years, he's really come on. He's a bit of a late bloomer because he's 30 years old and he only got his move to uh, Europe at the age of 27. He went to Rio Ave and now he plays for Porto. And I think, you know, he's probably... Uh, yeah, I would say Harry Kane is maybe the best striker in this uh, in this group, but Mehdi Taremi in the form he's in with Porto makes him a close second. Uh, and if if Taremi is on um, on his game, mm. uh, if we cast our minds back to how they played against Spain and against Portugal, he had two chances that he missed. But I think Taremi now in the form that he's in takes those chances. And if they are defensively solid enough. Uh, and Taremi or another forward like Sardar Azmun uh, can can take the chances presented to them, then you're talking about the type of team that can keep clean sheets and be very, very clinical in front of goal. And that's a winning combination in tournament football, as we all know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Taremi, who, who scored the goal the other day when Iran beat Uruguay, which felt like a, a significant result. Also in the squad, you've got Brentford, Sam Godos, you've got uh, Hagambash, uh, ex-Brighton, now at Feyenoord. Asmun, who we we keep seeing in Champions League action, and it, it generally comes billed as the, the Persian Messi. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I was excited to read he's literally from Golistan, um, <laughs> which, you know, for me... What more do you need to know? But you say the chances go from slight to significant. How worried should the other teams in this group be? Yeah, well, I think the general consensus was when the when the um, draw was made that it was going to be pretty straightforward, right? People said England uh, and USA. At least that's the prediction I mm. heard um, most oftenly cited. Uh, and then you had, I think, another camp that said um, a little bit more seriously that actually if we take a step back and look at the FIFA rankings, which I know are much maligned, but this is actually the strongest group based on average FIFA rank. So a lot of people then said, yeah, maybe England uh, finishes winners, but it's a toss up between the three. And I'm I'm leaning more towards the latter, that it is going to be a toss up uh, between the USA, Wales and, and Iran. And I think it's more of a case of, you know, who has the experience uh, and I think a lot of people forget this. You know, Wales hasn't been at a World Cup for what is it, 58 years? The United States missed the last uh, the last World Cup. A lot of their players are are young and inexperienced, and you know England's having a bit of a wobble. So, and it seems just that the team 
is responding to Carlos Queiroz. You know, that, that match against Uruguay was like he never left. Um, and they, they exhibited the types of things that you want to see, I think, in a team heading into a tournament. Defensive solidity. Um, they can attack you in different ways. They, they have got amazing technical quality. But when it calls for it, uh, they can go direct to goal. And, you know, in the first two minutes, they had a shot on goal and they went route one. And the goal they scored um, in the 79th minute by Mehdi Tarami was a 10-pass was a move that started back with the goalkeeper. So uh, it's a team that can hurt you. Uh, the only concern I would have with Iran is typically with, with Kirush's teams, if they go down a goal, there really isn't a plan B. And the plan A is to remain defensively solid. So if they concede first, I worry about their ability to get back into games. But... Mm. You know, but if they're they play playing like England. they did against Uruguay, and they're playing England, who hasn't scored in 400 minutes, so that helps. But yeah, if they play like they did against Uruguay, then definitely they're in with a shout. Basil McDaddy, fascinating to see how that group's going to play out. Whoever wins the group gets the runner-up of the Qatar group, which is Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. So if you finish runner-up in England's Group B, you're probably going to be facing the Netherlands and then after that you'd probably have France at least that's what I worked out looking at my wall chart yeah you got that's right James I have I've got World Cup fever of course I'm feeling a little bit conflicted about it Joey you've recently returned from Qatar so let me ask you what did you think going out there and how much did your trip change your opinion on on this upcoming World Cup yeah, it's a tricky one because as you've seen the extremely well-documented human rights abuses, people have died building these stadiums and that's, you know, horrific and that's never going to, you can't return, you can't reverse that, you can't change that and that will always be a sort of shadow hovering over this World Cup. But if you visit now, you won't see that, you know, you'll see these shiny new stadiums, you'll, you'll drive around the country um, and I think there have been a lot of changes. Um, I think, you know, workers' rights are better than they were seven years ago. I think construction standards are better than they were seven years ago. Frankly, largely as a result of relentless criticism from Western journalists and journalists from all parts of the world. I think the two kind of go hand in hand. You know, you often hear when you report on these political issues in football, whether it be Newcastle and Saudi Arabia or Qatar, you know, oh, why are you being so negative? Why are you being so cynical? And I think you kind of have to be negative if anything's ever going to change. And the, the organisers uh, have been, you know, sick of all this negative press and have made some changes. But I think, you know, those changes aren't absolute. And groups like Human Rights Watch have documented, you know, workers not being paid, um, and there's still this huge black cloud hanging over it that people in countries like um, India and Nepal who built those stadiums, um, you know, it died. There's, there's widows in rural India and Nepal who don't have their husbands because of um, uh, they died building the stadiums. And it's also a complex thing to count because, you know, if a worker dies um, because, you know, they fall off a height in a stadium, which has happened, uh, that's very clearly a stadium death, which is counted as such. But lots of people die from have died from heat-related um, illnesses. You know, working out there in the extreme heat in the summer will do terrible things for your body, which might not kill you there and then, but might kill you, um, you know, if you go home that night or a few years later. And that's clearly mm. happened. A lot and of suicides a, as, as well. I, I, and so it's very hard to put a number on these things. And then these numbers are bandied about. And then um, I think there's one number which the Qatar very v vociferously argued was too high. And then you get in the sort of thing, oh, is it all this Western plot to discredit this tournament? Right. So putting exact facts on things is very hard. But clearly, you know, these, these awful things have happened. But if you go there and travel around now, you won't see that. You know, you, you, there's not a sort of graveyard outside the Lucille Stadium. You know, it, it all looks very shiny and things work. Right. I mean, I guess numbers wise, any any number is, is, is clearly uh, terrible. Uh, Absolutely. If it, if it could have been avoidable. Now, I mean, the one thing I was going to say about the negativeness, on one hand, I feel like, yeah, now the World Cup's going to happen and the urge is to enjoy it and not to be prejudiced about the first World Cup held in a, a, the Middle East and, and, and any other of the more kind of exciting novelties about this. But Russia kind of colours my a little bit my reaction to this because Russia invaded another country. Four years later, a lot of people went along to the World Cup and went, actually, Russians are really nice people, fair enough, and the country works really well. And the kind of feeling was, yeah, they did that, but there's a World Cup and it's not going to change anything. Let's enjoy the World Cup. And I, you know, I'm ranting a little bit here, but I feel that the fact that we, it normalised, the fact that everybody kind of went, well, that's okay, we can still accept the situation there. It, I wouldn't say it's what led to what happened since, but it certainly 
in no way put up a flag in their minds about international reaction to to the, their activities. Absolutely, uh, and with the with the Sochi Olympics as well, obviously um, mm. in twenty fourteen. I mean, you asked if it made me change my mind on anything. I mean, one thing I certainly did think when I was out there is that. You know, certainly, you know, in the UK, the coverage of this is relentlessly critical, um, and that's you know for for very good reasons. But I just think sometimes, particularly as a sort of white Westerner, um, sometimes got to be slightly careful with the tone. In that, I think lots of people in the Arab world and the Muslim world are incredibly excited about having a tournament in that part of the world, and, and they've been talked about having it in places like Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia, which are more traditional footballing nations but frankly you know it's not safe to hold a tournament in those places and hasn't been for the last 10 years so I think for a lot of people in in hugely football mad countries are really really excited about the idea of it being in their part of the world and I think I think criticizing the the corrupt bidding process and the Mm. stuff leading to the construction of the stadiums is kind of good reasons to criticize the Qatar World Cup I think you sometimes hear sort of oh it's not a football place or it's not a proper football country which I don't think is true and I think they're pretty football mad in that part of the world. So I, I think it's getting that tone right between criticising the substantive fact without sort of dismissing a whole region or a you know religion or type of people. Fair enough. Although there is, the, the, the I guess, the third thing, which it's pretty justified to criticise on, and that is civil rights and LGBTQ Completely. rights and, and, and that area as well. And All you right, don't well, get a proper answer on that. You know, I asked senior people there, what about LGBT fans? And They'll say, oh, you know, they give them sort of half answer about, oh, everyone's welcome. And, you know, mm. I don't think the World Cup organisers want to be kicking down people's bedroom doors. You know, they don't want any of this negative publicity, but but it's illegal and it that's not going to change. And if you are in a LGBT relationship, that is illegal while you're there. And, you oh. know, <laughs> that Will is terrible be- in most of our opinions, I'm sure. Yeah. Will it be good, do you think, as a World Cup venue? I think there's a huge question about hanging over it, whether the infrastructure will work on a basic level. I mean, it's never been tested. If you hold a tournament in the UK or, or Germany or even Russia, you know, a million people have got on that tube every day in Moscow, in Johannesburg, in Brazil, whatever. We know it works. And, you know, if a train breaks down, they've dealt with that before. Whereas in Qatar, it literally hasn't. And a couple of summers ago, there were flash floods in Qatar. There were, there were cars floating down the street um, in in, the, in November. You know, if that happens and there's four World Cups going on in a day, I have no confidence that things will work. I mean, that probably won't happen. You know, it would be bad luck. Um, but there have been photos of accommodations that look completely dilapidated, like a sort of refugee camp where people are meant to be staying. Um, you know, I think there's a genuinely valid chance that some crucial part of the infrastructure here will completely fall over. Crikey. I thought you were going to be saying how amazing the stadium look and the... Oh, they look look great. Yeah, they look great. And I think another another thing that I can't work out, which is an open question, is how full the stadiums will be. Hmm. Um, Because on the one hand, you know, it all says sold out. But on the other hand, it's obviously incredibly expensive to get there. It's not much of a tourist draw. You know, I I know various England fans that have been to other tournaments who aren't interested in going because, you know, if you go to Russia or Brazil, you have a great holiday on the side. But in Qatar, it's a pretty boring place. You know, there's not much to do. Are not a, a lot sort of, of people staying in Dubai and then making it like a shuttle yeah. journey? Well, Dubai is more, you know, if you want to get drunk and go out and whatever else, <laughs> Dubai has that. Obviously, that's not what fans from all over the world want to be doing, but there's more of a sort of party atmosphere. Qatar's a, you know, it's a conservative country. They don't sell alcohol outside hotels. But I think on the flip side, um, one thing that will be good for lots of fans about this World Cup is that because it's tiny, um, you can go to two games in a day and there's mm. not a huge amount else to do. So if you go for four four days, just go to eight games, you know, eat, sleep, then go home, um, which is quite a different vibe. I mean, if you want a detox um, while you're taking in a World Cup, Doha is a perfect place to go to. Very difficult to get hold of alcohol, very little to do. Um, if you want a, a sort of very quiet, um, reflective uh, month uh, in, in, a, in, in a country with a, you know, a, a clement climate, then... Maybe you know. Maybe this is the World Cup. If you don't like noise and excitement mm. uh, and and and, and uh, uh, spots of cultural interest, I'm I'm being quite dismissive. But I'd mm. spent about five weeks in Doha. You did uh, in January 2011 when they just won the right to host the World Cup. Uh, I was covering the Asian Cup, uh, and it's the most boring place I've ever been to in my entire life. And just to echo what Joey was saying about England fans who aren't going to the World Cup. Um, I was at Wales's World Cup playoff win over Ukraine in June, which was a, a historic moment uh, in, in, in the history of Welsh football, qualifying for the first World Cup since 1958. And even as we left the stadium, all the Wales fans who I was with, and these are proper diehard fans who go home and away, there wasn't a single person who was planning to go to Doha because mm. it's, it just doesn't 
appeal and you don't get that or you you know you you won't get the same kind of tournament experience that you get at you know in a country like Brazil or France or, or wherever where there is so much to do off the pitch I think a load of Wales fans are going to Tenerife they're just like hiring out a resort and they'll just watch football and have fun in the sun for 10 days <laughs> probably might have a lot more fun than the fans actually going to the matches I'm actually going to Seville with some fellow Wales fans oh, to do really? the same thing. Just might, you know, turn it into an event, albeit not the event that we're following, or at least not in the in the location where it's taking place. Just to sort of briefly going back to the moral issues with the World Cup. A few months ago, um, me and a colleague did a piece about uh, David Beckham's involvement with this World Cup and his kind of people's line was that he's trying to drive change to try and use his influence to affect some kind of positive change. But, you know, as, as we've seen with Russia, the, the, the long lasting global effects of, uh, of having a world cup in terms of improving things in a country aren't, it's just unrealistic to think that that kind of thing is going to happen. Um, and you know, that they, they may well, you have someone from the I think the FA last week saying you know if you are if you're gay and you go to the World Cup you it'll be fine to kind of you know go go on a date with a with someone of your same gender or whatever you'll be, you'll be fine don't worry about it but you know it, actually trying that in practice and particularly after after the World Cup then you know it's not it's not I don't think it's very realistic I think one of these issues about issues such as um, gay rights you know women you know the idea of sort of premarital relations and a woman kind of doing what she likes and hanging out in the evening and drinking and uh, you know laws around sexual violence which a colleague Jacob Whitehead has written about um, are just not in the same place as they are here you know women are frankly expected to either live within the household of their family or, or be married and that's the you know and and you know of course the World Cup organizers don't want to be clamping down conservatively on LGBT people or, or, or women you know they don't want those negative headlines but the question is who's going to be enforcing these actual rules and you know the people security guards in hotels or um, policemen or people like that slightly sort of lower down the food chain and further from the supreme committee which is a slightly star wars-esque name for the people organizing this world cup i mean just because they don't want something to happen doesn't mean that a bad thing won't happen and it's a similar thing a lot of the problems in the construction industry haven't been with the actual stadium where the world cup final is going to be held which is under a lot of scrutiny it's three four levels beyond that at some sort of car park being built five miles away where there isn't the same levels of scrutiny right a lot of issues but the stadiums look nice anyway you went to oh they look fantastic yeah yeah and they look great on tv and i went to one that was air conditioned um and it was 40 odd degrees outside you know i'd never been anywhere that hot before in the summer it is after 10 minutes you're struggling to breathe uh, London, yeah, actually, for a couple of days, London was like that. But inside the stadium, it was it was lovely. It was twenty five, cool. Um, and the, the, the great irony about all this is that it won't really be necessary in November or December in Qatar. It'll just be huh. quite a pleasant, you know, like a sort of breezy summer's day in England. Um, but they've got air conditioning. They have magnificent. All right, well, there you go. It's all happening anyway. Uh, whatever people's thoughts on it, and hopefully, it will drive positive things on and off the field. No question, it is slightly unsettling, this unelected, highly conservative regime cracking down repressively. You know where I'm going with this, don't you, Nick? Ah, <laughs> uh, you're, you're going to do... It's, it's the old switcheroo, isn't it, James? Let's move on. Next up... Ooh, we can talk about Wales and other international stories. Hello, Faroe Islands. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. 
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is out on Tuesday lunchtime. Talking about the North London derby, the Merseyside derby, and generally a match day which saw the biggest cumulative crowd in WSL history. Just under 90,000 people turning out to WSL games. They'll also be touching, I imagine, on whether the Spanish national side have resigned en masse or not. Ooh, Spain. Men's team had a bit of a bit of a disaster, losing to Switzerland. And they've got this big game against Portugal on Tuesday night. Portugal, who thrashed the Czech Republic 4-0. Portugal just need a point from that game to go back into the Nations League Final Four. Of course, their former winners, Spain, two points behind them. Wales, though, Tom. Wales got relegated. Wales lost to Belgium and Poland. Wales have lost three games in a row. Hey, and this despite the fact that they did that weird thing with the pre-match photo. Yeah, so that has been a tradition since before Euro 2016, uh, Hmm. when the Wales team lines up for its pre-match photo, rather than the conventional six and five, uh, it's a playful seven and four or eight and three or maybe even a nine and two um, and the women's team often do the same thing uh, I'm sure some of the age group teams do the same thing and it has become uh, a, a trademark uh, of the uh, of the national team and it's the sort of thing that you know puts a smile on your face when things are going well and mm. uh, the team are winning um, and then when they're not going so well and they're not losing and they're not winning rather you do kind of look at it and think right did on, they run surely. out of combinations is that the issue I, they run out of combinations some time ago. Yeah, oh. we have. We, it's been a kind of like it's been a it's been a, a steady rotation of um, of tried and tested uh, wacky combinations for for some time. Um, I mean, I, it doesn't bother me. But like when, yeah, when when it precedes a disappointing result, and then you sort of see the pictures of it on social media, you do think no, it's kind of unfortunate to have attracted attention to ourselves in this way prior right. to. A, Prior to a defeat. Well, tell us about what happened on the field then, the game against Poland and before that, Belgium. Yeah, so Belgium absolutely battered Wales um, in the first half. Kevin De Bruyne was sensational. Um, you know, one of those performances where every single thing he, he attempts seems to come off. Scored a really nicely taken opening goal. Uh, first time left foot shot uh, with the inside of his foot from the edge of the box. Uh, to put Belgium ahead uh, and then set up the second with a really nice sort of classic De Bruyne cross from the right. At sort of half time, Wales were lucky to only be, to only be 2 0 down. Um, and then unexpectedly rallied in the second half. Uh, Brennan Johnson produced a lovely assist for Kiefer Moore uh, to head in and put it back to 2 1 early in the second half. And, and by the end of the game, Belgium were, were really clinging on. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it meant that. Although although Wales lost, there was a sense that you know things could have been a, a lot worse, and you know they, and they had showed um, you know they had showed a bit of spirit and a bit of pluck in that second half, and, and come very close to, to snatching a point. Um, and then last night uh, at home to Poland, a very kind of like niggly, quite bad tempered game. Uh, not a huge gap b- between the teams. Uh, I think Poland were probably worthy winners. The winning goal was beautifully created by Robert Lewandowski uh, with an assist that, that brought to mind the, the famous Dennis Burkamp goal against Newcastle with a, a pass that was fizzed into him from the left-hand side and he's got his back to goal and uses his left instep to just cushion the ball first time into the path of, of Karol Svideski and he, um, he stuck it past... Uh, Wayne Hennessy um, and Wales rallied a bit at the end Gareth Bale hit the bar with a header um, and then they just ran out of puff uh, mm. and so Wales finished bottom of the group and are sadly you know relegated from uh, League 8 at, at the first attempt which is a disappointment because it you know being promoted felt like a, a big achievement but ultimately you know when, when you look back at this this Nations League campaign or, or the group stage in its entirety Wales have just paid the price for the fact that they had to play um, that uh, World Cup playoff final against Ukraine in June uh, as opposed to March. Uh, and it meant that their June schedule, which already had four Nations League fixtures in it, became even more crowded. Robert Page inevitably had to shuffle his pack to keep players fit. And so, you know, the, the team that he put out for those games against Belgium and, and the Netherlands were, were, were weak teams. 
and you saw that in the in the, the the naivety that Wales showed in those two games against the Netherlands when they twice equalised in stoppage time only to then concede uh, a, a winning goal later on um, and again you know uh, Wales were, were hamstrung by absentees you look at the team they put out against Poland last night no Aaron Ramsey uh, no Joe Allen no Ethan Ampadu that's the entire Welsh midfield and you know you, you're not going to you're not going to fare too well against the leading teams in the world when, when you're missing so many key players so while it's a disappointment, the only thing that really mattered this summer was was getting work at qualification, which they've done. And I think the fact that, you know, despite being despite missing so many key players, that they were able to make all of those Nations League games as competitive as they did, despite mm. not winning any of them, is is a, a crumb of comfort. Tom, you heard Basil before. How concerned, stroke optimistic are you about Wales and their first appearance at the World Cup since 1958? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting group. And as, as Basil said, it is on paper the, the, the tightest group. All four teams are in the, the top 22 in, in, in the FIFA ranking. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think when, when the names were drawn out, having avoided any of the other traditional big guns was, was a, you know, was, was felt like a relief. Um, it was annoying to get England because, you know, we played England at Euro 2016 and it's just, it's just never an enjoyable game. It's just uh, the thought of losing to England, being eliminated by, eliminated by England is so horrible. I can't even bring myself to think about it. Um, and then I think, I, I, I remember thinking, oh, you know, we'll probably beat Iran, we'll probably beat the USA and then maybe we'll beat England and knock them out and that'd be great. And then actually looked at how good they all are and realised that, yeah, maybe it won't be quite so straightforward. Um, Wales USA got, lost to Japan the other night. USA did lose to Japan. Um, I mean, I, you know, that, that USA team doesn't terrify me in the way that, you know, one of the, the real heavyweights would have done. Um, so I, I think Wales will look at those first two games. We, we've got the USA to begin with and then Iran, I think maybe four points from those two games. And then, you know, hopefully there's nothing riding on the England game um, and we can just sort of sneak through. But, uh, you know, at, at the same time and without putting on our, you know, plucky little Wales hat on again, Having waited 64 years to play at a World Cup, it, the whole thing is just so exciting. Um, so a, a mate of mine sent me a, a, a screen grab the other day of uh, a Brazilian football show where they were talking about Wales and Wales' chances and just things like that. You know, Wales being on the map in, in a football context is is so exciting. So, yeah, I suspect that that, that kind of excitement will be the, the, the predominant emotion when the, um, you know, when the tournament actually comes around. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, just to wrap up then, uh, there were all sorts of other things that happened internationally. We have neither the time nor the expertise, I suggest, to cover them adequately. But there are places where you can find a reaction. Not least, indeed, Tuesday's Totally Football Show, which will feature, you know, roundups from Alvaro and Rafa and James and Julien, of course. Just on the subject of France, you saw them, Joey, the game they did win in their Nations League Qualifiers. They then followed against Austria. They then followed that with the two 0 against Denmark. The defeat against Denmark. Uh, Oliver Boyson writing in saying, "Could we see any, yet another world champion implosion in Qatar, given all of France's injuries and all the drama behind the scenes? Also, the fact that they are going to be playing Denmark again in the group stages, who've just beaten them. What do you think, Joey? Yeah, I mean that's the piece that I'm about to go and write after oh, yeah? this after finish recording. I mean, basically, you know, in the last 25 years, France there's been six World Cups. France have reached the final in three of them, winning two, and two of the other three have been complete meltdowns. You know, sort of epic disasters, 2002 and 2010, with a brilliant star-studded team that have all just fell out, or I think in 2002 they were just sort of exhausted. Where's the um, fallout-ometer right now? Oh, it's very very high. Um, it's it's you know it's it's sort of touching 11 um you've got just to rattle through them quickly you've got a big uh sort of harassment scandal within the fff the french football fa the um some senior people there have been accused of some bad things um you've got Kylian mbappe's image rights saga so he's kicking off about not wanting to advertise certain things um including gambling websites and kentucky fried chicken and there's this sort of player power battle between you know, the, the Federation want them to advertise KFC, you know, Mbappe holding his bargain bucket and he, you know, doesn't want that, his brand. And I think he's won, basically. He just, he's won. Uh, they're, they're now sort of frantically rewrote the rules and got backed by a load of players. You've got, um, you know, the women's team, the player getting beaten by a metal bar. You've got, uh, you know, recent memory of the whole Benzema scandal. Mm. Uh, there's so many things going on. And, you know, I spoke to lots of French fans who were just like, oh, it's all going to go completely belly up again. Um, you know, on the pitch, you've got the Pogba-Kante axis, which has served them very well, it, it is, it is no more. You know, Pogba's injured, Kante uh, has got various niggles. It was 
Chiuameni and, and we don't know he'll be pairing him, potentially Camavinga. But it's all looking pretty new. I mean, that front three was was Mbappe, Griezmann and Giroud, um, which is a very a familiar trio. But some of the defenders, you know, barely heard of. I think the I think the one um, sort of caveat for for some of France's problems in in these last two games is, has been as, as Joey touched on the, the sheer number of injuries. They have fourteen players unavailable through injury last night against Denmark, and consequently put out a very callow back three and a pretty callow central midfield as well with with many and, and Kamavinga alongside each other. Um, you know, once all those players are, but you know that the senior players are back, that they should look a bit more solid. And I think. Uh, the, the one silver lining to all these injuries is that Pogba aside and Pogba has undergone surgery on, on a knee problem and he's going to be very touch and go for making it the World Cup all the other injuries are muscular problems so theoretically all of those players should be back um, but yeah I mean but it, you know, it wouldn't be France without some massive background scandal and here there are about 17 of them uh, so yeah whatever happens it'll be uh, it'll make for interesting viewing it's, it's interesting in Pogba you know from a UK perspective, he gets so much stick for his, you know, mediocre performances at Man United. French fans love him; they think he's brilliant um, hmm. because he's always, you know, turned it on in a French shirt. And he scored that amazing goal in the Euros last time when they went out against Switzerland. He was great in the World Cup four years ago. It's Pogba shirts everywhere, and there is a chance he might be back in time. I think I think he's due back for Juve's last game before the World Cup, which which maybe suggests that Deschamps not going to take the gamble. But I guess we'll see. It would be great to. See him there. All right. Well, we'll hear more about France in Tuesday's show. On Thursday, we'll also be reacting to what Scotland do away in Krakow against Ukraine. A draw there would be enough to take Scotland into League A above England. Woof. Uh, One final shout out to the Faroe Islands who beat Turkey 2-1. As the sweeper points out in their excellent Twitter account, Faroe Islands are... 1,726 times smaller than Turkey in terms of population, 562 times smaller in terms of surface area, and yet they were 2-1 winners. Remarkable. And the Pharaohs are unbeaten in four games, which is the longest undefeated streak in their history. Despite that, Turkey got promoted anyway to League B. So who's laughing now, Faroe Islands? Anyway, there you go. All right, well, uh, well, we'll wrap it up there. For this Totally Football Show. More on the way, as I say, Tuesday and Thursday. Many thanks to Nick. Thank you, Joey. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, producer Charlie. And thank you, listener. Hope you've had a good time with us. We'll be back again on Tuesday. Bye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.